I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. It's a new podcast from NPR where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts. Only from NPR. Love Letters is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate. Then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of Sidebar. If you're just joining us, these are like little bonus Love Letters episodes that we do from time to time. And we have a really great show for you today because I have asked two of my most favorite colleagues to come on the show and talk about something they are both experiencing and are experts at as journalists. So I want you to meet uh, two business reporters who think a lot about money, and I'm going to ask them also to think about relationships and love when it comes to money. So why don't you introduce yourselves? Hi, I'm Dana Gerber. I'm the producer for the business desk at the Boston Globe. I'm 23 years old, and I've been at the Globe on and off for about two years. Hello, my name is Diddy Coley. I'm also a business reporter at the Boston Globe, which means that I cover all of the wonders of our financial lives, and I'm also 22. Wonderful. Okay, so... Diddy, can you tell me a little bit about what you think about when you think about covering the experience of young people in the city? We just did an episode that featured two people and the cost of dating. And when you factor that in with rent and, you know, drinks are $70 if you get two drinks in Washington, D.C., as we learned, like, how much do people have to put this in the budget? And where does dating play into the way you think about what it costs to live in a city? I think in a lot of ways, I can tell that I've reached the pulse of a good story when I find myself like nodding along with a source when they're talking about how much money they spend here. And particularly like when that comes to dating, people bring it up all the time because in many ways it's seen as like an unessential expense. Like you have to pay your rent, you have to pay your groceries, you have to pay the medical bills that come through. And as a young person, a lot of the times you're doing those things for the first time, but you don't really factor in how expensive dating is until you have real adult expenses to also worry about. And I hear people talk about that a lot. One thing I want to talk to both of you about is something that I've long struggled with. And this isn't just for people who live in cities. This is for people who live literally anywhere where you have to pay for housing, which is literally everywhere. Years ago, there was a Harvard data analyst who wanted to look at the language of the Love Letters column. And she was trying to find words that were frequently used. And obviously, dating, love, breakups, these were words that came up a lot. One word that came up also was lease. And I was like, huh, this is because people write in letters about their leases affecting when they might move in with a romantic partner. And I get very upset about this because I always think as an advice columnist, oh, like our hearts should not be dictated by our lease needs or our rent needs. But in fact, when I'm honest with myself, so much of the reason people couple on paper is because they are sharing expenses, because they become households. So I'd love to hear from both of you about 
what you think of people having to make choices to move in with someone, perhaps even before they would naturally want to or be ready to, timed to a lease. Uh, Dana, why don't you go first and talk about this thing that makes me feel so dreadfully uncomfortable when people say, well, I could wait another two years, but the lease is up in September. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a pretty common theme among Gen Z and millennials that finances are dictating life decisions that should probably be based more in emotions in an ideal world. But it's really hard to see a way around that. It's the reality that we live in. And I think Gen Z is pretty good at being pragmatists in terms of their love lives. And that's, you know, not always the most romantic thing. But I I think I've almost seen it more in the other direction where people are ready to move in together, but their leases are running out. And so they're just going to wait the six months or eight months or whatever it is to to see their leases through when they're ready to move in now and essentially staying over at each other's places every night anyways. So, you know, in a previous world, that might have been reason to cut a lease. But in this market, that's just sort of another stressful variable to add. So, Did he? I mean, you know, I was also going to say that it's just increasingly a necessity. Like, clearly, this trend of moving in with your partner has been existing for a long time. But there's a number out there that Gen Z is going to spend $226,000 on rent in their lifetimes, which even adjusted for inflation is about $77,000 more than baby boomers. So if you're just thinking like, okay, I buying a home is not really in the cards for me as it was for my parents. I'm going to have to pay rent forever. I love this person. We were already kind of thinking about moving in. If you're just kind of doing the math in your head that you're going to save $1,000 every month that you could put towards something else, those are the numbers that I see people looking at and thinking about. Diddy, do you think that it makes it more of a essential, I must find a partner choice? Like, does it make it harder for people who just want to remain single? Oh, absolutely. I mean, the average cost for a one-bedroom in Boston is somewhere around $2,700. And if you're thinking about, okay, splitting a one-bedroom with another person, it totally changes your perspective. Also, the reality is that not a lot of people in Gen Z, which right now is about 26, 27 or younger, can actually afford a $2,700 apartment. It's just not out of the cards. So the option is get a roommate or figure it out. Dana, you're someone who is single in Boston, and this is something to be proud of, but how much does meeting a person feel like a necessity based on the economics of it all? Like, I had roommates until I lived alone, and it was still, like, a little bit affordable to live alone. Kind of. I mean, this was, like, of the big short era, so a lot of people in my generation bought homes that they could not afford. Some of them could keep them, some not. But now I see that, like, there isn't that middle period of, oh, I don't have roommates. I'm living on my own like a Sex in the City character, and then I will meet someone. It just doesn't seem as possible. And Dana, when you think about what you see around you in your own life, what what are the possibilities? I mean, it's, it's definitely harder to channel your inner Carrie Bradshaw, let me tell you. In terms of meeting a person as a necessity, I think I'm lucky in that regard that I am on pretty firm financial footing. I am, you know, gainfully employed, which a lot of people my age are still sort of struggling to find a job that pays them enough to live in Boston, even with a partner or roommates, much less alone. Essentially, I have a lot of financial privilege that I, you know, I wouldn't say that I feel a pressure to meet a partner in order to save money. 
But, you know, I just had my rent hiked by $200. I was like going on a couple of like dating app dates. And I was like, I really hope one of these pans out before September and we can just move in together and I can save $1,200. So I think people do feel like they need to meet someone or, you know, live with roommates, which is obviously not how a lot of people want to spend all of their adult lives. Dana, I'm going to ask you another question. So sorry to to keep uh, poking you with single people questions. But I think in my 20s, I was very much aware of a relationship gap of friends of mine who were single and struggling and people who got to split the one bedroom rent. How does the experience of coupled people feel very much apart from the lives of single people who are paying for things on their own? Yeah. I mean, I try not to see it too much as a burden. I, I think it's really easy to fall into that. And there have you know, definitely been times where I do want someone to help me make the decision about what couch to buy or someone to help me split the cost. But it's also oftentimes very nice to just pick what I want and like not have to answer to anyone else. And it's not what I would want to be doing forever because I do eventually want a partner. But I think, you know, just starting out in my 20s and in living independently post-college, it is nice to only have to worry about my own preferences. Diddy, we know that more and more people, especially younger people, are happy to move in with someone and consider it a stepping stone toward maybe a more contractual relationship. I I think my experience has always made me very afraid of people moving in and having to move out. Like that seems like a very heartbreaking and an expensive choice to have to make to take that next step and then reverse course and then go back to living alone. So I'm wondering as people perhaps move in quicker because of the cost of living, perhaps take that jump, you know, are they feeling less stuck if it doesn't work out? I would say, like, the simple answer to that is yes. Like, I think that moving in is inherently less temporary than, like, the contractual alternative, which is marriage, which, I mean, young people in general for a long time now have kind of started to shift away from that and do that older and older. But it's it's interesting. I mean, one of our colleagues wrote a story about how young people were moving in together sooner at higher rates than they have at any time since 2007. And there was a dip that people started to live alone in 2008, kind of, you know, big short time. But several of the couples that she talked to and several couples that I know in real life, like, lived together and then didn't live together. And I think the reality of that is, like you said, it's heartbreaking. It's really expensive. But, I mean, if you're looking for a silver lining, there's like five years where you saved $1,000 every month. And I think some people are kind of okay with that. They're like, okay, in this moment, this is right for me. I get to have someone to come home to. I get to save less on rent. And... I'll figure it out when I have to figure it out. Diddy, I love what you had to say about, well, at least I'm saving this money. That, that that even though it might make it that much harder to break up, that perhaps younger generations know that relationships aren't always permanent, nor should they be. That they might know that being together forever is not always the win. That sometimes knowing when to walk in a healthy way where people can still remain happy in their lives can also be a win. So is it so bad if we make these temporary investments that could be permanent, but also might not be? Is this 
too hopeful of a thought I have for younger generations? Or do you think people are actually believing that? I think they absolutely are. Our perception of permanency is just so different. Like, I don't have any friends who have moved in with their partner and are like, I'm with them until. But I think there's also a different understanding of if we do have to break up, if we walk away in a healthy way, like you said, whether that be in a year or two years or really down the line, we had this time both financially and emotionally. And there's something on the other side of us for that. And I also think it's a matter of like physical possession as well. The kind of things that we own, that we walk away with are very different now than they were 10, 15 years ago. You might not co-own as much stuff with your partner, even if you're in the same physical space, which gives you less to deal with if you break up. TikTok is now flooded with videos of people making really intense renter-friendly changes to their apartment that a year later, they'll like take off all of their crazy wallpaper and all the molding that they put up with command strips. But they're like, I deserve to feel comfortable in my home. And I think that thought process really tracks to living with a partner is like right now, this is the best thing for me. And it's like taking off the wallpaper at your end of the lease. Yeah, I mean, I think something that's really significant in our generation in general is this sense of, is this lack of security, whether that be financial or, or unfortunately more like ontological, like with the pandemic and climate change and the political climate and everything like that. It, it, it Maybe this is just me, but I don't feel guaranteed the same future that I think my, my parents felt in their bones that they were guaranteed. Um, so if you love someone, if you have a rented apartment that you want to, you know, deck out, I think there is this inclination to take the leap because you don't know what's coming down the line. Um, and you can sort of deal with the, the fallout when it happens. Um, and especially, you know, it, it is, of course, heartbreaking if you break up with someone and you live together, but, you know, it, it you'll get through it. And it would have been heartbreaking if you hadn't lived together. Dana, that's super bleak and I'm into it. <laughs> We're out here. <laughs> you're, like, you're like climate change, so you might as well get wallpaper and a boyfriend. Spend all your money. You can really see my thought process. Diddy, I want to ask you two experty questions as we finish this up. Number one, what would you say to people, especially young people, but also everybody people, who feel guilty about spending money on dates that go nowhere? What would you say to them about the investment they're making and how to feel about money that feels like it's going down the toilet after a bad date? I think that you're investing in your sanity. I think that if I never like left the house or like bought my little trinkets or paid for my $17 drink at dinner, I would actually go crazy. And I think that you have to find some joy in life. And it's like, it's very much like the millennial avocado toast theory. Like the $7 that you spend on your avocado toast are not the reason why you can't buy a home or like won't be able to achieve your financial goals. That's like the economic system changing around us. And it's going to continue to do that regardless of what you're spending your disposable income on. And who knows that one avocado toast of a date might be your soulmate. Exactly. (laughs) I will say the one advice I have is like free dates are oftentimes a really good way to get to know someone. Just like, especially in Boston, there's yeah. and in the summer, there's so many like outdoor activities. So if, if it's stressing you out to the point where you're not even enjoying the date, maybe 
maybe find an activity that's that's free, but go to the library. That's a fun free day. Oh, I love that idea. I love that idea. Yes. Uh, Diddy, my last question is, what advice about spending and saving would you give to someone who's just moved in with someone? There is this thought of, oh, I might have $1,000 more than I did before because I'm splitting a rent. But the whole point is that it's supposed to be cheaper. So what would you do with that extra money? You also don't want to feel like you're saving it for the breakup. (laughs) (laughs) You're like keeping it for three years until your lease runs out. Right. You're like hiding it in the mattress. (laughs) Yeah. I, I don't know. Like if you are newly in that, that experience of having more or moving in, what are costs you might not anticipate? What are some things to do with the money for those who are feeling a different financial situation? What would you say to them? I think that really early on, you have to have a conversation about what you're splitting that's not your rent and utilities. And I think that's really important because if you are moving in relatively early in your relationship because you felt like that was right, like maybe your partner doesn't want to invest in the $150 Facebook Marketplace chair that you like that in the event of a breakup, they would simply never take. So like, I think that you actually need to have that rapport though. And that'll also help you decide where you want that $1,000 to go. And so I, I think that's the the number one thing. Dana, I would love to know, in a library on a first date, what would you do? I've seen this in bookstores, and I guess this is another way of saving money where the people pick out books for each other and then maybe buy them for, uh, buy them for each other. So I would do that so at the library. I guess we would both have to have, I have a library card. Go to your public library and get a library card is my, is my if you take nothing else away from this episode. That's perfect <laughs> advice for anyone. More of my conversation with Dana and Diddy after a quick break. All right, so this is the question portion of Sidebar. So I'm going to ask you a few questions that were sent to me. They're real questions from people. I had an answer for these people, but I want to know your answer. And just for everyone listening, I want to remind you, we are an advice column. So send your own questions two love letters at boston.com. We will answer them. Uh, I will answer them. I will fix everything, you know, just in a blink. Um, Okay. These are all semi-related to our conversation. Dear Meredith, I've been dating my boyfriend for a year and a half. He is a lovely man who makes me laugh. He makes me feel comfortable as my authentic self. For the most part, everything is great except for when we talk about living together. I rent. He owns a house he loves very much and has worked hard to be able to afford. We've talked about me moving in with him. And while I would love nothing more than to move to this next phase, I do not feel comfortable in his house. I'm a homebody and home for me is my space to unwind after a very long day at work and in traffic. His house does not have the environment that affords me peace and the comforts of home. When we've talked about this in the past, he's said things like, why don't you try living here? And if it doesn't work out, it doesn't work out. I haven't really dug into that answer with him. Maybe I'm afraid of the response. He doesn't seem willing to compromise and consider finding somewhere we can both enjoy. What do I do? Leave this man, whom I love, because I don't feel the comforts of home, or stay and try to make it work and hope one day we can have the discussion again. I'm stuck at a crossroads of love and comfort. Dana, what do you think? I think his response was pretty 
generous. You know, it's, I, I guess I wouldn't say it's, it's maybe the compromise you're looking for in terms of starting afresh in a, in a home that's new to both of you. But I think, you know, if he's willing to sort of give you the grace of this trial run, you, you should probably just take him at his word that that's okay. And he wouldn't be expecting maybe you to give up your lease or, you know, and maybe that's the solution is you do give it a trial run where you're not, you know, if it doesn't work out, you have to find a new place. Maybe like decide on a month you can stay in his home when you still have your lease. And if you really feel like you need the comforts of, of your home, you can always go back there. So, yeah, I mean, I mean, maybe that's the solution is you just give it a trial run where there's no pressure to stay there if if you're really freaking out. Teddy, what about you? I mean, my first thing would be that if you have any openness about moving into his house, you need to have a conversation about how it's going to become like your collective house because it's very possible that the reason she doesn't feel comfortable is because it's all his stuff arranged his way and like what would he let her bring from from her place and what would that look like and would they change their routine would they cook differently like what about it that is not comfortable comfortable to you but the other part of it I agree with Dana that his offer seems really generous and he doesn't seem like this is make or break so it, it doesn't seem like this needs to be the end of of the relationship. I think you both make great points. And it did bring up for me this idea that the imbalance of power in someone who owns property and someone who rents, that sure, it's always nice to start over with something new that the two of you can claim. But in reality, homeownership is difficult and more permanent seeming. And yes, trial runs. But I did wonder too, did he like what? Like, what about why it? Why is it so? What? Why is it not comfortable? But I was just going to say, I do have a theory that like architecturally, if you guys are not aligned at all, you're probably not going to work out. Like if you are so, <laughs> if you are so firmly oh like God. mid-century modern and he's like, I want glass walls. Like if you're so completely different, that says so much about your personality. Wow. I mean, first of all, who isn't mid-century modern? I feel like I watched that movie, Don't Worry Darling. And I was like, I don't even know if I'm enjoying this movie, but I like the furniture. But I just like nice things. I would take the... Twilight House with all windows also, but that's that's an interesting... Absolutely not. If I'm in love with a guy and I go to his house and it's completely glass-walled, I'm getting out of there. Red flag. I love that you know that about yourself. Okay, question two. Hi, Meredith. I'm in my mid-30s and single. I've been having a hard time transitioning from having friends to hanging out with them and having them as emotional support only occasionally. My main friends have found love, married, have had kids and a busy life, and I'm really happy for them, but they reach out less and less these days. I feel lonely a lot and haven't met new friends I feel a deep friendship with like I did with my older long-term friends. I try dating, but nobody sparks my interest. I guess my question is, should I just learn to be my own friend and support system instead of reaching out to old friends who have a different life now? What are the rules of friendship now? Are you just supposed to move on silently and wave goodbye and be thankful for what was? And this person signs off single. Oh, my goodness. I know, right? This is tough. I mean, I think, I think I'm struggling to wrap my mind around this question because in my experience with this, it's never monolithic in that, like, all of my friends are sort of, you know like drifting away at the same speed and to the same extent. And I have the same relationship with all of my friends and no one else new is coming into my life. Like I, I hope that it's a little bit more, I hope she, 
you know, has maybe one or two friends who are maybe a little bit closer to her than than other friends. But I do totally understand that when your friends partner up, it it does come with a certain shift in the in the relationship. Um, I was just going to say, you just to interject, you cannot be your own support system. <laughs> you can be part of your own support system, but you do need friends. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> um, I think there's nothing wrong with maybe picking up a new hobby or continuing on the one you're doing and trying to, you know, engage with more people. I took an improv class and that was really fun to like, I, I didn't end up super hitting it off with any of the other people, but it was just nice to like see the same people once a week for, you know, eight classes or whatever. But also, I mean, I, I don't think you can ever lose anything by being honest with your friends. I mean, if it's, if it's a distance that's upsetting you and you feel like the only reason that they are, you are growing apart is because they're spending a lot of time in their new relationship. I think that's something you can tell them. Um, or, you know, not not in an accusatory way, but just say, you know, I feel like we haven't been as close since you got together with X and X. Do you want to plan on a, like a Monday night drink every week or something like that? Diddy, anything to add? Yeah. I, I mean, I was just going to say, you shouldn't have to carry the entire burden of friendship and what that requires, but there's no harm in putting out that initial offer to be like, I haven't heard from you in a while. We haven't talked in a while. Why don't we do this and this? And like, sometimes I think that just extending that makes people realize that they've distanced a little bit. And then you go back a little bit more into the old routine, even though, you know, it probably won't be exactly the same, but it's nice to kind of be the person who puts your foot forward. You know, I, I will say that like, I think thirties, that's often when people write in with this kind of problem. And it is, very heartbreaking because we had a great episode about this with a source named Devin who talked about all of our friends coupling up and being on a group chat with like pictures of babies and pregnancies and weddings and all of these things. And she was like, Oh, this is really great. And I can't even share my stuff. And what does this mean? And uh, friendship evolves. It, It can be distant and then it could come back. Now that I'm older, I find out from friends who coupled off and had kids that they were very lonely during some of those years Uh, You know, it might have been perceived from my side that they were busy with other things, but in fact, they were quite isolated. So I know we all say no new friends, but new friends, you have to make new friends, whatever. It's like a lifetime of work of making new friends, but your old friends stick around. You don't drop them. They come back. The value of company is is. Yes. Is really important. It doesn't need to be, you know, the start of a beautiful friendship. It can just be like getting work drinks or something like that. What a beautiful way to say it that, first of all, it can be new friend, like singular. And and company is such a great concept that you're not trying to replicate what you have with people you've known for 15 years where there's no effort that needs to be made because they just get you. Company is nice, even for us introverts. So... City Dana, I want to thank you for not only bringing the expertise of writing about, thinking about, journalisming about money, but also just being two people who live in a city and are trying to make that work. Uh, thank you for sharing your stories and your thoughts about the world. Thank you for having us. Thank you, Meredith. Always, always so fun. Love Letters is a production of the Boston Globe and PRX. Today's episode was produced by Jesse Remedios and Scott Hellman. 
Ned Porter does our audio mixing, sound design, and mastering. Devin Smith and Maddie Mortel do our audience engagement. Love Letters illustrations by Ali Riza. Our marketing coordinator is Maggie Taylor. Special thanks to Linda Henry. Our music is from APM. Next week on the show, an intimate look at the price of starting over after a big breakup. We're online at loveletters.show. I'm Meredith Goldstein. Thanks for listening.